Well, good morning to y'all, and an important reminder that on Monday, uh, sorry, Sunday, May 17th, we're going to receive the largest offering in the history of this church. <laughs> we hardly ever talk about money around here, so you guys don't know how to react, right? I know. This is only the third time in 22 years I've ever even had to come to you guys with uh, a request. Once when we built this place, and second when we added some office places on it so that, so that uh, the staff didn't have to continue to hold their offices in closets and stuff. <laughs> and uh, on May 17th, we're going to complete whatever is remaining toward a $200,000 need for a new parking lot which doesn't sound that glamorous, but it's, uh, it's going to be a very special day. It's an important day, and uh, everything that we receive on that day will go toward the parking lot. We've uh, already received nearly $50,000 from the generosity of people toward that, and so we're just going to be praying for the balance. That's very cool. And uh, once again, as I mentioned last week, uh, you're certainly free to give toward that uh, project anytime between now and May 17th. Just mark it real, real clearly on your, your check or your on, an envelope or however you would choose to do that. And also, if you'd like to give now toward that and on May 17th, that'd be great too. Uh, tough crowd. Uh, <laughs> you guys have got stiff all of a sudden, man. The reason it's important that we that we do this, you guys, is pretty simple. I mean, certainly we don't want anyone else to fall and break an ankle as they did two weeks ago in one of the massive holes out there. But more importantly than that is because this is where so many things have started. We're not a church that's very good at staying home. You notice that? <laughs> and if you just think about the countless numbers of lives that have been touched in spiritual ways, physical ways, emotional ways, so many different ways around the world, in India and Brazil and Nicaragua and all these other places that God has blessed us to go. And in this country, in South Dakota and Wisconsin, these places God has called us, Hurricane Katrina, all these things that have happened through the life of this church. And here in this city, weekly outreach to homeless people, just think about it. This is really where something amazing, amazing starts. And uh, we don't need so much a better place to park as we need a firm foundation from which to launch. And so that's what that's going to be about. There are three things that you should know as you think about your role in this. First of all, remember, this is not a campaign to expand anything, it's an essential offering to take care of what God has already given us. We're not, uh, we're not asking, hey, let's put up a big shiny sanctuary or something. Uh, I think this works out just great, don't you? Uh, this music stand is the same one that I've been preaching from for 22 years. Uh, it's been in schools and little buildings and big buildings and storefronts and various uh, iterations of where we were, and I think it works just fine. I'm not asking you for a plexiglass pulpit. Uh, I'm not asking you for any of that. A uh, special parking spot, <laughs> nothing. I, I, uh, we just need to take care of the stuff that God's already given us. 
And um, another thing you should know that this is a big project, about $200,000, and we're not going to borrow one single dollar to do any of this. Not one single dollar will we borrow to do it. And we are uh, coming up on only 25 months away from being debt-free as a congregation. And, uh, well, all this will be paid for. And as long as you let me hold on to the steering wheel, we will never borrow another dollar. And uh, I'm very excited about that. So you need to know that, that we're not going to borrow any money to do this. But the third thing you need to know, know is we're doing this. We're doing it. We're putting in a new parking lot. Well, how can you say that if you don't know what the offering's going to be? Because God has placed it on my heart that we're doing this. That he's going to provide the supply through all y'all. And so your question is, do I want to be a part of it? Your question is, you know, do I, do I want to get in on that? And it always, it's always a blessing to obey what the Lord's saying to you. So, listen, for 15 years on this property, I've been, I've been circling this property and praying for you. You know that we have a trail around this place that we call the Wall. And thousands of times now over 15 years, I have walked the Wall and prayed for you. And now I'm going to ask you to do something for me. You don't owe it to me, but I'm going to ask you to do something for me. I'm going to ask you, those of you who are physically able, sometime between now and May 17th, I want you to step outside of that front door. And I want you to turn left or turn right. And I just want you to walk around the perimeter of this parking lot and envision the new launch pad and listen for the voice of the Lord. Just circle it. I'll keep circling the big property for you and praying for you. If you could just make one lap. We're going to continue this morning with our, uh, with our consideration, our study of worship in a series we're calling Worship 101. Uh, two weeks ago in the beginning message, Amy did such an amazing job of showing us from Scripture that worship is an invitation. It's an invitation to come and be the people of God. It's an invitation to not just stand around, but to do something. To give praise to God. It's an invitation into the presence of God. It's an invitation to experience God. Last week I shared with you a message in this series from the Word uh, that worship can be done just for the pleasure of it. That there are sublime and ecstatic pleasures available to us as we learn how to worship God and release and worship to God. And that just for the enjoyment of it, just for the pleasure of it, is valid motivation for you to be a person of worship. Because God created you for His pleasure, and so that since He's a perfect God, that when you're giving Him pleasure, you're having pleasure. So that worship is, uh, is an experience of pleasure. That's where we've been so far. And remember that next week, the message that I intend to bring is dedicated to those of you who would say, I'm just not feeling it yet. I mean, I come to this place, I like the music, I guess. I see the people getting all jiggy with Jesus, but I'm not, I'm not feeling it. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I don't know. I'll be polite, but I'm, I'm, just not, I'm just not feeling it. And next week's message is just for you. But listen to me. It's not a message to try to beat you into submission. Get your hands up, boy! 
It's not, it's not one of those messages. It's a message to show you something in Scripture that may validate why you're not feeling it, you would say, and validate your style of worship. And we'll see that through a, a name maybe you've heard in the Old Testament, a guy named Nehemiah. All right? So that week's going to be for you. Uh, I have a feeling I'm going to be talking to more men than women that day, because you guys, you know, you're, we're guys, right? We're standing around going, okay, I belong to you, you bought me. You know? It's all right. I have a feeling, but there are women also who, you know, are there too, who could be Nehemiah's. I want to show you that that's a valid place to be and how to worship God from that place. So you guys who have those really short worship fuses, you know, like as soon as the first note, you're going, wah! You know, you people. It'd be a great Sunday for you to go to Bob Evans or something. (laughs) Send in your offering, but we don't... We don't, we don't need you, all right? <laughs> all right. Well, that's what I'm planning on next week to be about. Today I'd like to talk about getting a grip. Worship is about getting a better grip on the Lord. It's about improving your grip, your hold of the Lord. That's what worship is about. I want to show you. I'll show you from the Bible Mark chapter 5, starting verse 24, the second half of it, actually. Give you a chance to turn there. If you have a Bible, Mark chapter 5. Starts with Jesus on his way to heal a little girl who had died, daughter of Jairus, a temple ruler. In the middle of it, here's what we get. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Who do you reckon him is? Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, uh, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Lord, we invite the present ministry of your Holy Spirit to come and be the teacher. It's your word, Lord. They're your people. Whatever level I can be a part of what you want to say to them, Lord, use me. Whatever part gets in the way, move me. Because, Lord, I just really long for every person here to experience and encounter you. So open our minds to an understanding of your word, but also open that place in us that longs for a relationship with you, whatever we call it. Just open up that place in us so that we can have an authentic encounter with the living you 
So come, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Okay, so here we have this passage, and, uh, you know, the first thing we have to do if we're going to do good Bible study is establish something. What is that? The context. Very good. The context is the larger story, the stuff around the story. We've got to take a minute to establish that. And this is one of those passages, this whole this woman touching the hem of Jesus' clothes and stuff and getting healed. This is one of those passages that if you don't take the time to establish the context, two things can go very wrong. And the first is that you have people selling garments or pieces of cloth that have somehow been you know, blessed with the power of God and for whatever donation, we can send you this and you can put it on your cat or whatever, you know, and all will be well. And so you have that problem if you're not careful. Uh, the other thing is that you can, if you don't take time to establish the context, and I think the, the more tragic thing than that silliness would be that you miss the depth and the richness of what this passage really has to offer to you. Uh, I think it's fascinating that this account of this woman being healed by touching the edge of Jesus' clothes is kind of in parentheses in a larger deal, that Jesus was summoned by this temple ruler named Jairus to say, come and pray for my daughter. She's, she's sick, and she looks like she may die. And so he said, okay, and off he goes. And on the way, this incidental kind of thing, you know, happens when this woman grabs, and then he continues on afterwards and goes and raises the daughter from the dead. But it's also like, you know, it's a little parenthesis there, and, you know, while Jesus was going to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, oh, by the way, this woman reached out. And I love it that it's kind of inserted in there in the context of the, the passage. You know, it's almost like, you know, the things that we would consider to be incidental or unimportant are very important to the Lord. That there's nothing accidental, there's nothing incidental in the Bible. That it's all there with intention from God, with a message for you because he loves you that much. So I think there are three main points of context that you want to get a hold of if you want to walk away from here today going, oh, that's what that passage means for me today. Three main points of context. Ask me what they are. The first one has to do with the hem of his garment. What is this business with the hem of his garment, of Jesus reaching out and grabbing, the, or this woman reaching out and grabbing the hem of Jesus' garment and suddenly being healed? Well, to put it in Hebrew, probably what this woman did was she reached out and she grabbed one of the tzitzis on his talit. I know. That's just funny. Don't you wish the middle schoolers were in here right now? <laughs> she reached out and grabbed one of the tzitzis on his talit. The talit is, this, is a Hebrew word for the prayer shawl. In uh, Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 41, you'll see that God gave a command to the Israelites, and it was a real simple command. And he said this. He said, I want you to put a blue thread on the corners of your garment. The blue thread. Just put a blue thread on the corners of your garment. And he said, if you read on, he says, and if you do that, if you do that, that blue thread will always serve as a reminder to you that you belong to me and that there is a life I have called you to live. It will always remind you of my plans for you, of my law, of the areas of life I want you to miss and the ones I want you to get. And it will serve as a blessed reminder. And it was meant as a profound and simple reminder. Just put it, done, just put a blue thread on the corners of your garment so that every time you go, oh, blue thread, I see. It would sort of be like, you know, you putting a Bible hanging around your neck, you know? 
it would probably affect your, some of your behaviors, right? I don't think I can do this with a Bible hanging over my neck right now. Anybody? You talk, any, am I talking to anybody except Lloyd there? Is anybody else here? So that's what this was. These, are, these, are, these were meant to be simple, profound reminders. But eventually, this thing grew into adding more tassels on the edge of the garment and longer tassels so that, that among the tassels that were on a man's garment, that they were tied into 613 knots to remind the people of the 613 Levitical laws that you wade through when you're trying to read Leviticus and stuff, right? And do you see what happened again? This simple profound gesture of love from God who said put a blue thread on the corners of your garments to remember me and so all the world will know that you are mine that we take this simple profound gesture from God and we uh, and we we turn it into some over orchestrated empty religious ritual again why do we do that why do we take the simplicity of the gospel the simplicity of what God's saying to us. The simplicity of come to know Jesus, get filled with the Holy Spirit, and then walk a new life into some complicated religion of boxes to check off and hoops to jump through. It's, that's what we do. And this is another example. So this, this, these tassels were just meant to be reminders. And it grew to the point that, that the longer your tassel was, the more spiritual you were. Check out my tassel. It happened at bars all the time. Jewish men picking up women. Let's see my tassel. It's in the subtext. I think that that's a piece of the context you've got to get if you're going to get this. I think the second thing is the automatic flow of healing power. This woman, what what did he do? Just reached out, Jeff, she just reached out and grabbed this thing. And it says as she touched it, that, that she was healed immediately. That there was some kind of automatic flow of power from just her touching that thing, just grabbing hold of it. And I think we've got to get hold of that. Well, in Mark chapter 6, just turn one page over in your Bibles if you have it open, verse 53, this is a little bit later on in the process of Jesus being around, and when they had crossed over, 6.53, when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus, and they ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. And catch this. They begged him to let them even touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. So there was some kind of automatic flow of power. Jesus didn't even seem to have to participate in it because when this woman reached out, he goes, who touched me? This is because Jesus, though fully God, Philippians chapter 2 says that he, while he was among us doing what he needed to do for us, that he laid down his right to be God. And so that while he was essentially God, he was still essentially God, the Bible says that he stopped being God in that way, and so that he was not omniscient. 
So God is omniscient. God would have known who touched him, right? But he said, who touched me? It's kind of like when he you know, put the mud in and, and healed that guy's eyes and stopped in the middle and said, can you see anything? And he goes, I don't like trees and stuff. And he goes, well, let's do it again. Why do, you, why do you have to ask him, can you see anything? Because he laid down his right to be God. Why did he do that? To show you, Eddie, what a spirit-filled man can be. To show you the example of a perfectly spirit-filled man and the power that's waiting to flow through you. When did he get his God back? (laughs) Keep reading in Philippians chapter 2, right? What does it say? That he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because he was obedient... God raised him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he was restored after giving it up for us. But in the process of that, he walked around as a model of what the heart of God for John Hines is. This is what I want to do through you. Pretty powerful, I think. But, uh, so what about this uh, tassel thing and the grabbing the hem of the garment? What, how is that, uh, how did that happen? Well, in order to get that, you have to turn back to an Old Testament book. It's Malachi. It's the last one in the New Testament. And it's uh, chapter 4, which is the chapter you avoid because it talks about tithing. Or chapter 3 talks about tithing and stuff. And you really want not, you don't want to go there, okay? You might wind up being obedient, and then oh, who knows what happens next. But in chapter 4 of Malachi, in verse 2, it says, But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you'll go out and leap like calves released from the stall. I particularly like the rest of that verse because Karen and I have raised cattle, and when you turn pent-up calves out there, wow, they're just crazy, man. They're running around. How many of you know what I'm talking about? They're running around kicking and stuff, and this is a completely irrelevant illustration for you guys, isn't it? You go, <laughs> like, I live in a neighborhood, never raised cows. But this is the picture of the church, what God means for the church, that we're like released from ourselves. What would we be like? We'd be running and dancing and kicking our feet up. Amen? Okay. So, but if you look at this again, you look at this uh, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, and it says, um, for those who revere my name. How many of you revere the name of God? Okay. So, so this, then this is for you. For those who revere my name, it says, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Now, how many of you, like me, are a little bit uncomfortable that it's the sun, like the sun that comes up, like it's S-U-N, and you'd feel a lot better if it said S-O-N. Anybody? I'm like, a sun? Was he a sun god or what? Because this was written at a time when, when you know, the, these cultures, these Greek and Roman cultures, they had a god for everything, and any culture that saw the power of the sun had, the, had, a, had, had a, a sun god, Yes? And so you see that, the son of righteousness, and you go, I don't know, I wish it said son as in S-O-N. I'd feel a whole lot better because that would be Jesus, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, well, let's do a, a little Hebrew lesson here. The word for son here is shamesh. 
both of which are written up there. There is one on the left and there is one on the right. Shamesh. It means, it means sun, S-U-N. Now, I want you to notice that though the, 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 the letters are the same, there's some extra doodads in the one on the right. Do you see, anybody see those? What do you see? You see some dots and squigglies. Those are called vowel points. And as the Hebrew language advanced and progressed, as every language has advanced and progressed, that's why Google is now in the dictionary, right? So uh, that as it progressed, that the one on the right with the vowel points comes from the Masoretic text, which came about 1000 AD, all right? The one on the left is the ancient text, from which, which, which would have been in play when uh, Malachi was written 1,500 years earlier. Are you following me? Now, the one on the right means sun, S-U-N only. But the one on the left, without the vowel points, in a more primitive state of Hebrew, meant sun or, catch this, servant. Servant. And one of the confusing things about Hebrew is one word can mean different things depending on what is around it. We call that context, right? So it's a little more challenging. And so as the language advanced and became more sophisticated and refined, the meanings narrowed. But the word on the left, shamesh, in its ancient form, meant son or servant. Well, how could it mean son or servant? Easy. So God is invading a polytheistic world, many gods, with a monotheistic concept, one God. Hero Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, right? That's the whole concept. And so the sun, which every culture, every culture would have had a sun god in their pantheon, he says, I'm going to use the same word for sun as I do for servant. Why? Because the sun serves the one true living God. The sun itself is a servant of God. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaimeth the work of his hands. That all this stuff is for his glory. You read through Psalm 119, it says, he has set a course for the sun, so the sun serves him. S-U-N. Yeah? Okay. So, the trouble is, is that in the Protestant church, and there's where the Catholics have us beat, is the Protestant church interprets most of the Old Testament from the Masoretic text. And so you're limited when you get there. Well, that means son. Problem was, Masoretic text wasn't in existence when Malachi was written. So that we have every liberty. Is this boring? So that we have every liberty, every liberty, and it's going to make so much more sense when we do it this way. But for you who revere my name, the servant of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Who's the servant of righteousness? Let me ask you again. Who is the servant of righteousness? Jesus. Who did Isaiah say was the servant? Jesus. He came to die for us on the cross. And so when you look at this, and you say, oh, but for those who revere my name, that's you, the servant of righteousness will rise. That Jesus will come with healing in its wings. Wings. Again, It could be translated wings or corners. Corners. What did God say to do with the corners in Numbers chapter 15? Put the thread on there. There's power in them because God planned it from the beginning of time. Hello? I'm preaching so much better than your amen. I'm going to need a nap. 
So that integral to the hem was healing. The hem of Jesus was healing. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? This woman touched it, I'm healed. People were begging him, can I just touch, I don't need to trouble you, all I need to do is touch that, and I'll be healed. What a powerful concept. Do you need healing today? What do you need to do? You reach out and grab a hold of the hem, right? You need to get a better grip on the hem, right? The third point of context, and it'll be the last one, is the sufferings of the woman who touched Jesus. So back in Mark chapter 5, it said that she had been suffering from something. What had she been suffering from? Bleeding. How long had she been suffering? For 12 years. 12 years she had had some disease that it said caused an issue of blood. I think we could safely assume some kind of reproductive connection. I think that'd be safe assumption. I think we could assume that since she'd been having this problem for so long, she may, it's more likely that she was a mature woman rather than a young woman because it's more likely that those kinds of things happen. Not impossible, of course. But I think we could mostly assume that this woman was a mature woman who developed an issue of bleeding and that she suffered from that. But was, why did she suffer from that? She went to doctors and said, could you help me? Could you please heal me? And, and it said that she suffered at the hands of many physicians. She said that they couldn't help her. Well, what was her suffering really about? Well, I have some news for some of you. Her suffering wasn't so much about the bleeding as it was something else. And in Leviticus chapter 15, it says that if a woman has a continuous issue of blood, she's unclean. And if she's unclean, she needs to be put outside of the community, outside of the camp. And you go, whoa, man, that's really harsh. Well, check this. This is before there was any microbiology, but God, God was telling them, when there's blood flowing anywhere, I want you to stay away from it. And so God, you know, pre-microbiology pre was telling the whole world that there can be disease in blood. And so his command was, when somebody's issuing blood, they need to be set apart because I don't want you touching the blood. In fact, if you touch that, you're unclean and you're outside the camp too. Okay? Now, here's the deal. She'd been bleeding for 12 years. She's outside of the community. She can't come home. She's outside with the rest of the people who have been put outside. 12 years. Well, I think we can safely assume that she'd probably born children before she left. She had children, maybe who were grown Maybe she had grandchildren. Now here's the catch. While, she, while a person was commanded to be put outside the camp, you could still bring them food. But you had to leave it. And you had to keep a safe distance from them. Can you imagine the daily ritual of this woman showing up at a spot and seeing her daughter come and leave, leave food over there, but then she had to go before she could go get it. And she came one day, and she saw that her daughter was pregnant. And she came another day and saw that she was holding a baby. And came another day, and that baby was walking. And for 12 years, I don't think her suffering was nearly as much about her disease as it was about being cast out and separated from the people that she loved. Grandparents, anybody know what I'm talking about? 
the horror of being separated from your grandkids for some reason for 12 years until God makes a way for you to be reunited. So when Jesus talked to this woman and turned to her and said, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Boom. He said, how did he say that? He said, you're relieved from your sufferings. It wasn't just the disease. Go, he said, in peace and be freed from your suffering. But it was from being outcast. So he was saying, your faith has healed you. And he opens the arms of the Jewish community and he says, welcome home. Welcome. Welcome back. That's the context. Now, very quickly, we're going to answer the question, so what does all this have to do with today? Two things. Number one, authentic discipleship is lived with your hand on the hem. You want to be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ? Yes. Get your hand on the hem. That's where you live. You don't visit the hem. You walk by the hem. That's how you follow Jesus, with your hand on his hem. Catch this. Sometimes it's hard to follow Jesus, right? Not with your hand on the hem. Because when he goes, you go. And when he goes left, you go left. When he, goes right. when he stops, you stop. How many of you have stopped and let go of the hem? And I, Lord, I'm just going to peek on up here. Anybody? How'd that work out for you? Hold on to the hem. In Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23, one of the prophets said, this is what the Lord Almighty says, in those days, prophesying the coming of the Lord, in those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Uh-huh. What was one of the names for Jesus? Emmanuel, what did that mean? God is with us. So this prophecy about Jesus in that day, people from all over the place, all languages, will come and grab a hold of the ham, it says, of one Jew. Authentic discipleship is lived with your hand on the ham. Second, authentic worship is about getting a better hold of the ham. You've got to get a better grip. How many of you have done something at some point that required a grip and you said, I'm losing my grip, and you just needed to break? Some of you men, sometimes we do tug-of-wars here. Get that big rope out and we do tug-of-wars. How many of you have been losing your grip and just said, hang on a second, guys, i got to get a better grip? Could you all over there stop pulling for a second? I just got to get a better grip. That's what worship is. Worship is hitting the pause button on the war and saying, come on in, get a better grip. Get a better grip. It's a chance just to get a better grip. On the hem of the Lord. That's what worship is. When we ask you, press in. Come on, experience the Lord. It's about getting a better grip. So, how's your grip? That's a question for you to answer. No one else can answer it for you. How's your grip? It's imperative to the vitality of your, your discipleship. It's what worship is for, is to increase your grip on the Lord. You know, May 10th, 2012, was one of the most terrible days of my life. And it was a Thursday. And it was a day that I 
preached in front of 4,000 people. And it wasn't the size of the crowd that made it the most terrible day of my life. But it was the occasion that I was preaching the funeral of Pastor A. Stephen in Bangalore, India. And our dear friend, Pastor Stephen, who had been here so many times over the years, I've been there so many times over the years. As many of you know, he became gravely ill. And the Lord spoke to my heart and said, Go, lay hands on him. So off I went. And he died while I was in the air. His daughter ran to me and threw her arms around me. And she said, you're too late. And I stood over his lifeless body and I commanded him to come to life. And he stayed dead. His wife said to me, I know you came to raise him up, but now that he's gone, you have to do you have to preach the funeral. I said, No way. You have to, no way. You have to. All right. And so that day, there were four thousand people there. A sea of people spread out on this campus that that he had spent his life building to train up gospel preachers. and That's where he allowed us to build our children's home for our little girls there. It's all part of one thing. It's like an oasis in the midst of this squalor. And his house was about, well, 15 or 20 minute drive through Indian traffic from there. And that's where his body was because the custom at least I don't know all of India, I only know a little tiny speck of it, but was to bring the body to the house and for two days you mourn. And then we loaded up this casket into the hearse and we in another car right behind them followed the hearse through the city of Bangalore to the campus where we were going to have his funeral and going to bury him. And when we got near the campus, it was just a sea of people that just seemed to come out of nowhere and surround the vehicles, and they were mourning, and they were literally throwing themselves on the hood of the car we were driving in and were wailing about Pastor Stevens' passing. They loved him so much. They didn't know what they were going to do without their leader. And so if you can just imagine inching through the cars, just inching through this huge crowd of people, up to the place where we wanted to be, where we could bring his body inside and have this funeral. And we stopped and we got out. And, you know, I knew that I was supposed to kind of make my way up to this certain place. And I just knew that from having done so many things there over the years. And, and uh, when I stepped out, I hardly got away from the car. And I saw, I saw something. I saw... I saw our girls from the children's home. And they were all in their best dresses, but they had this look of fear and terror on their faces. And I could see that they had somehow become separated in this huge crowd from from the person who was taking care of them. And they were terrified. And so I just 
they saw me. Well, imagine that, me in an Asian crowd, right? I mean, <laughs> let's do the math on that. And they saw me, and I heard one of them, and I went over, and I just got down on my knees and with these girls. And, uh, and I said, it's going to be okay. And I said, here's what we're going to do. I said, Rebecca, Rachel, and one of the other ones, I don't remember, I want you to hold on to my shirt really tight. And I want all the rest of you to hold on to one of them really tight. And just at that time, a guy comes to me and he goes, Oh, Pastor, you must sit up here. We have a place for you up here on the platform. He says, Please come. You must come. You must come. Come, come. All very frenetic. And he says, You must come because it turns out Pastor Stephen was kind of a big deal. And he wasn't us. He was just our brother, right? But in India, he was a big deal. And there were all these dignitaries up on the platform. And I was supposed to sit up there with them. There were all these important people up there, except me. And he said, you must sit up there. Okay. So I said to him, I said this, I said, all right. But I'm not going anywhere without these girls. And he goes, oh. And he starts leading the way through the crowd. (laughs) Come on. And they're just hanging on. They're just hanging on. You getting this? And we got up to the platform, and there was the leader of this ministry and the leader of that ministry, and Bob was the mayor, and all these people sitting up there, you know. And then they had a chair for me, and I sat down there, and I had 14 little girls sitting on the floor around me. I really hesitate to use an illustration that compares me to Jesus. You know that. But that is authentic discipleship. It's grabbing on. Grabbing on to the Lord's shirt. Grabbing on, holding on. And if you can't get hold of his shirt yet, get hold of the shirt of somebody who has him. Get hold of their shirt. Because if they're all, all that they're cracked up to be, they, they won't want you holding on to their shirt very long. They'll grab your hand, they'll go, no, your hand goes right here. So, Father, we just bow now in our time together, and we see that, uh, we see that you have a heart for us that maybe we didn't know, that you have made an automatic flow of healing in, the, in your touch, that you have room on the hem, that there's place for everybody to grab hold of something that would revolutionize, radicalize our lives. We invite the present power of your Holy Spirit into our time together now, Father God, and come and draw us into the closest places we can possibly be, and I pray, I pray, Father, for those whose hands are already on the hem, I pray that you'd strengthen their grip. I pray for those who would love to be on the hem. I pray that you'd show them the spot that you have planned for them to never let go of. I pray for those who are just now deciding and somewhere in their spirit there's a conversation going on with you that says maybe I should come to you and follow you and surrender to you and receive you. I pray for them. I pray that you would lead them to their place on the hem. I pray. God, for a flow of your healing power in this room today, I pray that the sick would be healed. I pray that the addicts would be set free. 
I pray that the lost would be found. I pray that the confused would be counseled. I pray for a release of the power of the Holy Spirit in this room to cancel everything that the devil had planned for any person here. And we just say, we just say to you, enemy, with our hand on the hem, our place seated in the heavenly realms with Christ, we just say to you, we rebuke you, and you will not steal another morsel from our table. And so we invite you to come. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. It's your church, Lord. It's past time for me to get out of the way. So I just give them to you, Lord. I think it'd be great if we'd have some prayer people come on up get up prayer people could you come up there are people here who need you to pray for them today they need you to they need you to pray they need you to believe they need you to release faith for their predicaments they need you to help them find their way to Christ they need a lot of things and you need to come up now where are the men come on men Come to these people and receive prayer. Where are the men? Men, please come. Church, let's stand together and worship the Lord. Let's do whatever you want. There may be value to you. Come up close. Just do what is in your heart to do.